Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34. The word of God speaks to us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is God's word to us. Amen. Thank you, sister. Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. It's uh, man. It's always so fun for my heart to get to be here at Frontline South. I love you guys so much, and uh, every time I leave from worshiping with you, my heart's full. It was super fun to see you guys navigate the gauntlet of demon possessed geese getting into church. That was incredible. I appreciate the social experiment that your pastors are putting together. It was, it was really great. It's like all kinds of personality profiles. We've got redneck country folks that are offering to relocate or cook the geese. We, we have harmonizers that are concerned about the well-being of the geese. We had people that 
circled the entire parking lot to avoid the geese. And you know what? We, we love all of you. We need everybody in the body of Christ. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for you, and then we're going to dive in. If you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll walk through these verses. Father, I just want to pause, not just in the service and not just before we get to the sermon, but actually, I want grace to pause in my heart to offer you gratitude for all of your kindness. Lord, there's nothing in us that should lead to you sustaining and blessing and moving in this church like you have. Lord, I'm so thankful for the ways that you're tying our stories together. I'm so thankful for the ways that you have redeemed, are redeeming, and will redeem the men and women in this room. And I pray as we talk about the Lord's Supper that you would shape us to understand the gospel more deeply, that we would understand the church more deeply, that we would be more vigilant to fight for the kind of unity and bond of peace that Jesus has given us. So Lord, thank you. Please help me to serve my friends and let Jesus be lifted up today. And we ask all this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, so let me tell you something that I'm really excited about. By God's grace, this next Easter Sunday is gonna be Frontline Downtown. It's gonna be their 18th birthday as a church, which is, it blows my mind. The fact that God has sustained our church that long and planted churches through Frontline Downtown really is amazing. And uh, over the course of the last two weeks, I've just been sort of chuckling to myself, thinking about how many wild things have happened on Sunday mornings in the last 18 years. Um, If someone was to write the unofficial history of Frontline Church, there would be a whole chapter devoted to just weird things that drummers have done. I remember... Early on in the life of our church, we, we met for the first four weeks in our living room, and we were just completely broke. We were dirt poor, and we finally found a building that we could afford that was this crack shack building on 23rd Street with mystery stains on the carpet. It, it was a glorified hallway with a freight elevator in which senior citizens would get locked in every single Sunday. It was a suboptimal building for reaching the lost. And yet we moved into this building with high expectations, hoping that Jesus would move. And I did something that pastors should never do in a church plant. I did an open call for musicians. I was like, hey, if you play an instrument, come and worship Jesus on Sunday. And I had this guy come up to me. He was in his mid-40s. He had a headband. And he said, Pastor Josh, I play drums, and I want to rock for Jesus. And I was like, dude, come rock for Jesus. And I show up on Sunday morning, and this brother This brother had more cymbals on his drum kit than we had people in the church. His drum kit, his drum kit was so metal, it would embarrass Lars from Metallica. He had had a a double bass kick, and this dude set up this drum kit that literally took a third of our entire building, and then he proceeded to beat the drums like they owed him money so loudly that children were weeping Moms were running out of the building, eardrums were bursting, and as the pastor, I remember going up to this guy after the service and just saying, hey, brother, thanks for playing. Um, Do you think maybe between now and next Sunday, I could buy you some brushes so that you don't damage people's hearing for the rest of their lives? And this guy looked at me and he said, Pastor Josh, when you're older, you'll understand how important it is to rock for Jesus. I was like, fair enough. Now I'm in my 40s and I do. Um, 
After, after a little while, we got to move into another building that was just insane. It was on Broadway, and uh, we, we started experiencing a real move of God where God was saving people from all these subcultures. And so we had tons of punk rock kids, and we had bikers, and we had homeless people. And if you wanted to visit our church on a Sunday morning, you had to run the gauntlet of the smoking section outside, and you would just smell like smoke for the rest of the day, which I thought was amazing. And I remember on a Sunday morning, we had four services and no AC, so we would set up swamp coolers. Uh, Wes and Lori remember these days. It was miserable. And in the middle of the nine o'clock service, we had this drummer that was wearing a hoodie. And so right in the middle of the worship set, this dude <laughs> took off his hoodie and he had a t-shirt with one word on it in huge eight-inch block letters, just the F word. No, no context, not directed at anyone in particular. And I remember thinking, I should probably have a conversation or I might not have a job next Sunday. <laughs> so I walked up to this guy and I was like, hey, brother, do you think for the sake of Christian unity and charity, you might be willing to turn your shirt inside out for the next three services? And he begrudgingly submitted to my heavy-handed legalism <laughs> under duress. Um, I remember another Sunday, we, we had these two guys that were showing up and they both looked like they were roadies for ZZ Top. And I'm preaching, I'm just trying to get to the gospel. I'm talking about Jesus' heart for people. God's moving the spirits at work. And all of a sudden, these guys stand up, and they start screaming and squaring off like they're going to fight. And I stopped them, and I'm like, hey, brothers, what is the problem? And this dude looks at me, and he says, well, he stole my cigarettes, pastor. And I remember saying publicly, hey, man, if you don't fight in church today, I will buy you a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> I, got, I got a lot of emails about that. Um, <laughs> I remember a couple years ago, we had this super crazy conspiracy cult show up, and they were doing a documentary about the Murrah bombing, and they were trying to trick pastors into being in their documentary. And so most of our pastors are not nice enough to have those conversations, but there's one guy downtown who leads the care ministry of our church, and he's just a good-hearted shepherding pastor, and they just totally tricked him into like a 45-minute conversation about their wild craziness. And I guarantee you that he's on some dark web IMDB for their documentary now. It's our church's claim to fame. Uh, we've had so many crazy things happen. We, we've had people throw Bibles at me on a Sunday morning. We've had people bring in protest signs. But here's the thing that's wild. In the midst of all the things that have happened, all the crazy Sunday mornings, great Sundays, mediocre Sundays, and Sundays that were kind of bad, I have never one time in the last 18 years thought that it would have been better if we didn't gather as a church. And Paul is addressing something that's happening in the city of Corinth among Christians that's so out of step with the gospel, it's so incongruent with the life of Jesus that Paul is going to write to these Christians, and I can almost imagine him having tears in his eye as he writes this, and he's going to say, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying something's happening that's so out of order among Christians on Sunday morning that it would be better if you don't correct this to not gather as the people of God on Sunday. So what possibly could be happening that's that bad? Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those that are genuine might be recognized. Now, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for a while now, and we've already seen all kinds of division among Christians. There's been 
leadership divisions where there's factions within the church who are teaming up around their favorite pastors. There have been moral divisions in the church. There have been doctrinal divisions in the church. There's even Christians suing other Christians over trivial offenses. But now we're getting to a division that's so grieving to the Apostle Paul that he's going to say this by way of rebuke. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise? If you write in your Bible, circle these words. They're so weighty. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There's a particular kind of division among the Corinthians between the wealthy and the poor that's so grievous, it's so weighty, that Paul is going to say to them, Paul is going to say to them that they're despising the church and humiliating each other. Now, in the early church, it was their common practice on the Lord's Day to share a meal together. This became known throughout the centuries as a love feast. It was a meal where Christians would break bread, and they'd eat food, and they'd pray, and they worship. And in the climax of the meal, they would take bread, remembering Jesus and his institution of the Lord's Supper. They would break bread, and they would drink wine to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we don't know exactly what was taking place among the Corinthians as they ate this meal, but there's three strong possibilities that I want to give to you. The first possibility is that we know Sunday was a work day for most Corinthians. And if you were a wealthier Corinthian in that culture, you had a little bit more flexibility in your schedule. So it's possible that what was happening on the Lord's Day is that Christians who were well off were getting to show up early before church, and they were tailgating on the Lord's Day before the other people showed up. And they would eat a lot, and they would drink a lot, and the poor Christians would get there on Sunday, and the rich Christians would be stuffed with food, tipsy, and there would be no food left to share with the poor. It's also possible that what was happening was simply a bit of a first century potluck where everybody brought their food and they shared together. And what we think could have happened is that the wealthy Christians were bringing the first century equivalent of filet mignon and caviar and choice wine, while the poor Christians were bringing stale bread and watered down wine, and the wealthy Christians were eating their delicious rich food in the face of poor Christians humiliating and embarrassing them. A third possibility that's really interesting comes to us from archaeology. Uh, we now know that in the city of Corinth, wealthy people tended to have small dining rooms, and they had large outer courtrooms. And some theologians think that what was happening is that wealthy Christians were sort of the patrons of the early church. They would host the poorer Christians together in their homes. And what could have been happening is that the wealthy Christians were shoulder-tapping the VIPs in the church, the people that they thought were of influence and of importance, and they were inviting them to come into the dining room for special food and delicious wine while the poor Christians were eating meager food outside of the house in the courtyard. And though we don't know exactly what was happening, whatever was happening, the church of God was being despised and people were being humiliated. And the key issue here for Paul is that the very act weekly as we break bread and drink wine, 
the very act that's supposed to be a fresh encounter with the love of God in the gospel. It's supposed to be a fresh telling of the gospel and a fresh receiving of the gospel. That very meal is so incongruent with Jesus who was rich making himself poor so that through him we who are poor spiritually could be made rich that Paul is saying what you're eating is not even the Lord's Supper. It's not about the gospel. You've missed the gospel altogether. And so Paul wants to correct their error by bringing them back to the heart of the Lord's Supper. And the heart of the Lord's Supper is what God has done for us in and through Jesus. So I want to give you six things that Paul's going to mention. And these are six things that I think are really formative for our church. We're a church that seeks to be biblical and historical in practicing what we think are biblical rhythms of liturgy. We want to be shaped and formed to learn how to pray and learn how to confess and learn how to repent. We want to hear the gospel preached. We want to gather around the Lord's Supper week in and week out to shape us and form us to look more like Jesus between Sundays. We also are a church that's unapologetically charismatic. We love the Holy Spirit and we want the Holy Spirit to be at work. We don't want just empty ritual. We want God to move and we want to have expectations and faith in our hearts as we gather on the Lord's day. And so to that end, I want to show you what Paul says because this is really timely for us as a church. Let me give you six things. The first thing that Paul mentions, and we'll be fast, the first thing he mentions is that this is a meal of thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper is a meal of thanksgiving. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. At the last supper before Jesus was betrayed, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and before he broke the bread and lifted up the cup, the first thing that Jesus does is to give thanks to his Father for the Father's generosity, love, and mercy in making a way of salvation for his enemies. And for 2,000 years, Christians all over the globe, as we eat this meal, have begun this meal in a posture of gratitude, thanking our Father for Jesus who is willing to come for us and die in our place. This is why many Christian traditions call this meal the Eucharist. You, know, you don't have to be Catholic or Anglican to use that word because it simply comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. This should be a meal of gratitude, and Christians should be the most grateful people in the whole world because not only do we receive the common grace gifts of God, like, the Bible says that God is even generous to his enemies. He causes the sun to rise on the just and the wicked alike. God gives even his enemies the gift of children and food and flowers and sunsets and friendship and music. Christians all the more should be people of generosity because not only did God give us all of that, but he didn't spare his own son. He gave us Jesus. And this is really timely for the Corinthians, and I actually think it's really timely for us in the 21st century because it's really impossible to have an entitled mentality, and it's really impossible to have a victimhood mentality when you actually have genuine gratitude in your heart. What was happening among the Corinthians is some Corinthians were acting entitled, as if they were superior to other people, as if they could place demands on others and demands on God. And when you posture yourself with gratitude to thank God, it displaces entitlement. It says, hey, you know what? Literally, everything's a gift. 
Everything is grace. Everything is mercy. And no matter how bad things might have been for the last six days, when you come to this meal, you also remember that even in the midst of the shadows, the light of God is broken in through Jesus. God has given you the greatest gift he could possibly give you, his own son. For other Corinthians, they were tempted to think like victims, like, hey, aren't aren't we oppressed? And to lean towards bitterness and cynicism and anger and hostility. It's also really difficult to have a victimhood mentality when you're truly grateful, when you realize that everything's a gift and God's kind to you. When I was a little kid, I remember reading The Hiding Place, the story of Corey Ten Boom. It's a, it's a great little book about two sisters that were arrested and put in a Nazi concentration camp for being Christians. And upon arrival at the concentration camp, there's this really fascinating passage that's kind of haunted me my whole life in which Corey says to her sister, Betsy, how can we possibly survive in a place like this? They were seeing the despair and the hatred and the evil all around. They were surrounded by filth and squalor. And Betsy, as she was so prone to do, simply took that desperation and turned it into an instantaneous prayer, saying to God, show us. How do we live in a place like this? Show us. And instantly, Betsy remembered what the sisters had read that very morning in the Bible that God graciously enabled them to smuggle into the concentration camp, the words of God in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's what it says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. And as the sisters started to practice gratitude, their gratitude was an act of spiritual warfare, pushing back the darkness around them and refusing to subjugate themselves to the darkness and evil of the concentration camp. Like you and me need so badly in this meal to have our hearts postured, not only for this being a Eucharistic feast, but to be shaped to live Eucharistic lives, lives of gratitude where we displace grumbling and bickering and complaining with gratitude because God is kind. Number two, it's also a meal of unity. And this is the big crux of Paul's correction to the Corinthians. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. That is a plural you. And what Jesus is saying in that moment is that through his death on the cross, his body, the church, is forever going to be formed by the grace of God. The you that Jesus is addressing here includes Christians that would meet Jesus in Africa, Christians in Asia, Christians in Europe, Christians in Latin America, Christians in America. This is a you that calls all Christians from every tribe, nation, and tongue to realize the profound unity that we have through Jesus' death in our place that we who were isolated, lonely, strangers, and orphans have become the body of Jesus, that we belong to God and each other, that Jesus reconciles us to the Father, but he also reconciles us to one another. St. Augustine was a North African theologian and pastor, and he said that just as many grains are crushed and baked into one loaf, and just as individual grapes are smashed and the juice 
is fermented into the one cup of wine, so we who are many, cut off and isolated, are made one body through Jesus. Here's what's wild. When we eat this meal, we remember every single week that you can come to the Father not through your own deeds and own righteousness, but through Jesus, your mediator. But you're also reminded in this meal that you're to relate to each other through the mediation of Jesus. I'm not allowed to talk to Andrew Burkhart or see Andrew Burkhart or relate to him on any level on my own terms. Jesus stands between me and Andrew Burkhart. We're called, we're called to maintain the unity, not create it. Jesus created it through his death. This leads to the third thing. Not only is it a meal of thanksgiving and unity, but it's also a meal of remembrance. Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm kind of amazed by the repeated commands in the Bible that point out to us that those are the places that we're constantly going to blow it and screw up. Like the Bible says, fear not so many times because we're terrified, right? And the world is actually really scary. And so we need to be told Old Testament, New Testament, hundreds of times, do not be afraid. Right? The same thing is true with the command to remember. The Old Testament and the New Testament repeatedly tells the people of God to remember. Remember the promises of God. Remember the faithfulness of God. Remember the word of God. Remember the works of God. And the greatest remembrance of all Christians for all time will be the great act of redemption that changed the universe, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're called to remember. And listen, this really matters because, man, I'm, I'm in full-time Christian ministry and I struggle with amnesia every single week. We forget, man. We forget who Jesus is. We forget who we are. We are human beings whose entire existence is a bit of an identity crisis. We forget who he is, and we forget who we are, and we go to dumb things. I start to believe that I'm my performance, that I'm my accomplishments. In my darker days, I believe that I'm defined by my failures and my sin and my brokenness. Other days, I'm tempted to believe that I am what people say about me as if they're the mirror that defines me. Other days, I'm tempted to believe the cultural lie of our day and age that I am whatever I make of myself, that I self-author and curate my identity. Well, listen, every single week when Christians come to this meal, we're called to remember that the truest thing about you is not what happened last week. It's not your resume. It's not your failures. It's not the things that are the worst in your character, or even the things that are the best in your character, the truest thing about you is what God says, and what God says through his son Jesus is that you're forgiven, that you're adopted, that you're loved, that you're chosen, that you're not forgotten, that you have a future and you have a hope. This is a meal where we war against amnesia and identity crisis by remembering that the gospel defines us. We remember Jesus. Fourthly, it's also a meal of proclamation. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This proclamation happens in two ways. It happens in what is said on a Sunday as pastors and deacons and various members of the church get up to share the good news of Jesus and to read the Bible and to pray and to sing and to worship as a pastor comes to this meal and fences the table and says, this is for all Christians who are willing to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection again today as your one hope in life and death, it happens as we tell non-Christians, we're so glad that you're here, but don't eat this meal without faith in Jesus. It won't help you. 
We proclaim as we share, and our sharing finds its climax in this meal because human beings are both spirit and body. And it's really kind of God to give us a visible representation of the gospel as we take the bread and the wine. It also is a meal, though, of proclamation in what is actually happening in the room. Because as Christians eat this meal, what we're saying to Oklahoma City is our hope is not in our good deeds. We're not better than anybody. Our hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're banking all of our life and all of our eternity on an empty tomb. You're proclaiming to your friends and to your neighbors and to your relatives as you come to this meal that you believe in reconciliation, that you believe in forgiveness. And in a culture that demands justice but doesn't know how to extend forgiveness, this is a meal of proclamation every week that says, you know what? If God can forgive me, I can forgive you. If God can forgive me and be powerful enough to reconcile me to the God who I made my enemy, I can believe that anything's possible. Reconciliation and forgiveness between husbands and wives, between brothers and sisters. This is a meal that proclaims the gospel of Jesus. Fourth, it's a meal of hopeful longing. It's a meal of hopeful longing. Um, Not everything in Christians' lives for the last 2,000 years has been resolved after they met Jesus. Can I get an amen from somebody that's honest? There's still stuff that's messed up and broken and there's struggle and there's sin and there's loss and there's grief. So look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a meal, this is a meal that patiently waits and longs for the end when Jesus returns. Meals are really special. I I love to eat food and there's certain meals that are special to me, not necessarily because of what we ate, but because of where we ate it. What happened in my life as we ate it. Um, The most special meal I've had in probably five years happened when my son was on leave from uh, boot camp in the Marines. And I knew that I knew that the next phase of training for him is going to be particularly hard and particularly dangerous for the school that he's pursuing. And I knew I wouldn't see him for a year. So it was during hunting season. We went out and we went camping together and we hunted. And that night we had a little charcoal fire and we ate wild game meat and we talked and we cried and we laughed and we prayed for each other. I'll never forget that meal. Okay, this is a meal. This is a meal of the ultimate significance because it connects you, it connects you to the two most important meals in history. The Bible is bookended by meals that change everything. The first meal at the beginning of the Bible is a treasonous meal in which everything breaks. We turn from God. Sin and death and corruption and evil flooded the cosmos as we rejected God's rule. The meal at the end of the Bible is the best news in the whole world. It's that at the end of history, after Jesus returns, there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb in which all things are made new. Every tear is wiped away. Now, as Christians, with lives that are unresolved and often with tears in our eyes, sometimes tears that we don't even have the imagination to imagine being resolved when Jesus returns, we come together every week to eat this meal in patient hopeful, longing, and waiting, believing that he's going to come back. Believing that the things that are not yet fixed in this world and not yet fixed in your life, the things that you're still weeping over will one day be resolved. This is a meal that helps connect us to history belonging to God. And then lastly, it's a meal of real presence. 
real presence. Look at, actually, let me quote from 1 Corinthians 10. This is implied in 11 and explicit in 10. We read this a couple of weeks ago. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's been a lot of ink spilled in different Christian traditions trying to figure out how is Jesus present in this meal? How is this meal a fresh participation in his body and in his blood? Uh, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, and I'm thankful for many things in their tradition. I think they miss it by a mile when it comes to their view of the presence of Jesus here. They believe that in almost a magical way, as the priest blesses the wine and blesses the bread, that they're transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus. I don't believe that the Bible teaches that. Right? Jesus' body is not in this loaf. Jesus' body is at the right hand of the Father until he returns. But rightly understanding the person and work of the Holy Spirit means that this meal is not just an empty memorial. Jesus is present and really present with the people of God as we eat this meal by faith through the Holy Spirit. And what John Calvin said, I believe, is true, that in ways that we don't even comprehend, when you eat this meal in faith, you are lifted up into the very presence of Jesus in heaven, and Jesus is brought near into the room through the Holy Spirit. This means that this is a meal where we should expect God to be moving. This is why we call this meal communion, because we're communing with Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, but the very presence of Jesus in the room. As you eat this meal, you remember that just as your body gets hungry and your body gets thirsty, your spirit is hungry and thirsty, and Jesus is the feast that you were designed for. So we come to Jesus to be with him, to hear him, to enjoy him. Now, I want to take you to the warning now, because this warning that Paul gives is really important, and it gets misapplied and misunderstood in the church all the time. So I want you to follow with me, starting in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that's really important, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, just reading this feels really sober. What Paul is saying is that there's Corinthians who are not discerning the body rightly, and the result of that lack of discernment is that God is chastening them. He's disciplining some Christians in Corinth to such a degree that some of them are sick and some have even died. And he's disciplining them in such a way that that temporal judgment is to prevent eternal judgment and damnation. And what's happened for a lot of churches and a lot of traditions is they've missed this warning in two opposite ways. The first way that we can miss this warning is we can think that what Paul is warning against is unworthy people receiving the meal. Now, pay really close attention. Paul doesn't warn against unworthy people. He warns against unworthy participation. And a lot of Christians hear this warning and they think, well, man, I've blown it. I've sinned this week. I'm not complete yet. I'm not worthy. I'm not a person that's without sin. I sinned in the car on the way to church today. And they can start to think, they can start to think that they're then barred from the table because they're not yet perfectly sanctified. They haven't yet arrived 
in full glorification. And I want to say to you, if that's you, this is not a meal for people that think that they're worthy. In fact, this is a meal that says the opposite. This is a meal that says the only person that's ever been worthy is Jesus. This is a meal for sinners. This is a meal for people that are grieving their sin. This is a meal for people that are heavy laden and burdened and poor of spirit. This is a meal for needy people and broken people and sinful people who are willing to repent and trust Jesus. Are you a sinner? Come to the meal. Trust in Jesus. Come and receive his presence afresh in your life. Right? This is not a meal for perfect people. This is a meal that celebrates the perfection of Jesus. Now, there's an opposite way to mess to miss that warning, and that's to just throw the warning out altogether. Well, I mean, awesome, we're saved by grace, and so therefore, let's just eat the meal, and we don't examine ourselves at all. But Paul is really careful here to point out that the problem in Corinth is that they are failing to discern the body. The reason Jesus is bringing temporal judgment in the Corinthian church is because they're not discerning the body. So what does it mean to fail to discern the body? Well, some Christians have wrongly believed that that means that they don't see how sacred the bread is or how sacred the wine is. It's about the elements. This is the body that we're supposed to discern. I actually don't think that that's what Paul's talking about at all. Remember the context of what we just read. The problem in Corinth is that there are Christians there who are despising the church of God. That's verse 22. And in despising the church of God, they're humiliating Christians that have nothing. So track with me here. This is really important. The way that some Corinthians are failing to discern the body has nothing to do with the literal bread and the literal wine. The way that they're failing to discern the body is that they don't see the sacred, beautiful nature of other Christians as a part of the body They're biting each other and devouring each other and believing weird, wrong narratives of each other. They're impugning others' motives. They're refusing to be reconciled. They're dishonoring one another. Most Christians in this church would be rightly offended if somebody walked in and threw a bag of garbage on the table where we have the bread and the wine because that's an important meal for us. It's a symbolic meal for us. Or if somebody between Sundays spray-painted blasphemous graffiti on the cross over here. Like, that would be offensive to us. But what Paul is saying is that even more than defacing a Christian building, the way that we dishonor, the way that we dishonor what God has made sacred is by failing to recognize that other Christians are a part of the body of Christ. Listen to what John Calvin says in Institutes. I'll read you one brief paragraph. He writes, we shall benefit very much from the sacrament if this thought is impressed and engraved upon our minds, that none of the brethren can be injured, despised, rejected, abused, or in any way offended by us without at the same time injuring, despising, and abusing Christ by the wrongs that we do. And we cannot disagree with our brothers without at the same time disagreeing with Christ. And we cannot love Christ without loving him in the brethren. That we ought to take the same care of our brethren's bodies as we take of our own, for they are members of our body. And that, as no part of our body is touched by any feeling of pain which is not spread among the rest, 
So we ought not to allow a brother to be afflicted by any evil without being touched with compassion for him. Accordingly, Augustine, with good reason, frequently calls this sacrament the bond of love. They're not discerning the body by dishonoring the church, by not relating to each other in the finished work of Jesus. So listen, this is a meal where we're called to examine ourselves and ask questions about, hey man, am I maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? This is a meeting, this is a meal where weekly husbands should examine themselves and if we've not treated our wives with love and with gentleness and with kindness, we, we repent, apologize. This is a meeting where if you realize your brother or your sister has something against you, where either before the meal, if that's what your conscience demands, or following the meal, you're going to pursue reconciliation. You're going to move towards them. We're going to keep short accounts. We're not going to bite and devour each other. This is a meal where we're called to relate to each other with honor and love like we relate to Jesus. I, I don't doubt that if Jesus in his physical incarnation was in our city and you saw him dehydrated and thirsty, you'd give him something to drink. If he was hungry, you'd feed him. But what Jesus gets at when he gives us the parable of the sheep and the goats is that when we fail, when we fail to see one another as a part of his body, and act accordingly, we're failing to love and honor Jesus. Lastly, for many in the room, you might think that with their particular class divisions that Paul would land with sort of like an instituted Christian communism, it's far from that, far from that. And what's really fascinating is that the Bible's really clear that you can be wealthy and obedient to Jesus, and you can be poor and obedient to Jesus. You can be you can be wealthy and disobedient to Jesus, and you can be poor and disobedient to Jesus. And Paul's conclusion at the end of this is really interesting. It's not the perfect redistribution of wealth. It's honor and stewardship. Look how he ends in verse 3. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. If any was hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What Paul is saying is that he wants gospel courtesy to shape the way that we relate to each other, not flaunting anything over one another or dishonoring each other, not elevating ourselves above one another, but relating to each other with love and respect as we would relate to the body of Jesus. Can we stand together and pray? God, I thank you so much for just the wonder of the gospel. It's so amazing. It never gets old. It never gets tired. There's constantly new angles and new beauty as we look at it. I pray that you would help us as we come to this meal to see that the center of this meal is the good news of what you've done in Jesus. Pray that we would have a fresh encounter with your love and grace today. Pray that you would restore people and heal people and meet people and fill people and encourage people as we eat this meal together. God, I pray if there's divisions, God, I pray if there's ways that wives need to repent to husbands and husbands to wives and brothers and sisters need to move towards each other, I pray as we examine ourselves that you would help us to do that. God, thank you for your command in scripture as, as much as it depends on us to live at peace with all men. So Lord, if there's fraction and division that 
we've left unaddressed. Help us to deal with that today. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink. We invite all baptized Christians who are willing again to trust in Jesus to eat this meal. If you're not a Christian, we are deeply glad that you're here. We'd ask you to not eat this meal because it's a faith meal and without faith in Jesus, it will not help you at all. It won't help you. It's not a magic meal. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you want to talk about becoming a disciple of Jesus, we'd love to talk, we'd love to pray, we'd love to hear your questions. But if you're a Christian, come to this meal, come eat and drink and receive fresh grace. When you're ready, come.